listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. All right, so we're in Colossians. The title of my sermon today is uh, Moment by Moment Christianity. And we've been hovering over this passage at the end of Colossians 1 for now, I don't know, three weeks, three or four weeks. And we're going to hover over it again today, although we will, we will go a little bit further into Colossians 2. But um, I just didn't realize until I started doing this series how rich Colossians is. It, it really is a fantastic letter filled with so many rich insights, and you can probably preach for three or four years just on the book of Colossians. I'm not going to do that, but uh, you could do it is what I'm saying. Moment-by-moment Christianity, I want us to look over at Colossians 1, tail end of Colossians 1, starting in verse 28, and then we're going to skip over to chapter 2, verse 5. So we're going to skip over a few verses, but we're going to cover all of those verses eventually in coming weeks. But let's look at Colossians 1, verse 28. Paul writes this, speaking of Jesus. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. You ought to have that highlighted in your Bible. I'm strenuously contending. He says that everyone be fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ powerfully works in me. Now look over at chapter 2, verse 5. He says, For though I am absent from you in body i am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined disciplined you are and how firm your faith in christ is so then just as you received christ jesus the lord continue just as you received him continue to live your lives in him rooted and built up in him strengthened in the faith as you were taught overflowing with thankfulness. One more time, I want us to pause and pray, direct our hearts to receive from the Lord. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge once again, you're in the room, you're speaking, you're moving, there are things that you want to do today in my life. I believe every person here should just say that in their minds, Lord, and confess that there's something you want to do in my life today. I expect it. There's something you want to speak in our lives. I pray, God, that our hearts would be soft and pliable this morning. We right now even put aside anything that could be an exterior distraction or even things that are going on on our inner life, in our minds. Right now, we set that aside. And we put all of our focus, as best we can, completely on listening and hearing deeply and receiving into the core of our being what you want to do and what you want to say. May your heavenly agenda be accomplished in our lives today. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul says, I strenuously contend. I toil, I struggle, it says in other versions. Agonizomai is the Greek word. I agonize. I, uh, it's this intense exertion of energy and force. Paul's saying, everything that's in me is devoted to this. I'm working 
as hard as I can. And what is the end to which Paul is working? To present you fully mature in Christ. Look at me. This is what drives Paul. This is what motivates him. This is what gets him up in the morning. It's what he lives for. He's obsessed with it. He can't stop writing about it in the New Testament. I want to present you fully mature in Christ. That's his goal. And it ought to be the goal of every single church to become and lead others in becoming fully mature in Christ. We're not interested in just getting people into the church and getting them to say a prayer. We want to take every person that comes to this place and lead them from where they are into becoming what? Fully mature in Christ. That is the goal. That's our goal. That's what we've got to be obsessed with. And everything we do as a church needs to be a means to that end. Amen? I grew up in the assemblies of God from the time I was four years old. I've been in the Pentecostal charismatic world. We were Baptist for four years. And then we started going to my mother's Assemblies of God church. So I've been in the Assemblies of God in the Pentecostal charismatic movement for a long time. And one of the things about us in the Pentecostal charismatic world is that we believe that God is one we can encounter. We don't just study God. We don't just think about God. We don't just talk about God. God is someone who wants to be encountered. He invites us into an encounter. In fact, I, I don't think you can be a fruitful Christian, a fruitful Christian for the rest of your life if you're not having regular encounters with God's Spirit. We believe and we must believe and hold on to the experiential aspect of the Christian faith. God wants to be experienced, and he invites us into that. And I'm so grateful when I look around my life, when I look back, and I can tell you about powerful encounters, experiences that I've had with God that have transformed me, that have led to my transformation. I'm grateful for these encounters that I have even now. I regularly have encounters and experiences with God in prayer, in church, in all kinds of contexts, I experience God. Not all the time is it like this big spectacular encounter. In fact, I would say by most people's definition, many of the encounters I have with the Lord aren't spectacular, but they're deeply meaningful where I feel and I sense the grace of God being poured into my life. And I receive ideas and thoughts that I ascribe as coming from the Lord, giving me guidance. I'm grateful. I, don't, I would never want to attempt Christianity without the expectation of having encounters with God. It's important. It's vital. It is indispensable to our Christian life. But every one of my encounters with God are a means to an end. I don't just have encounters with God and say, wow, I hit the target. The encounters I have with God are for the purpose of leading me to become a fully mature follower of Jesus. And those encounters only have value insofar as they're helping me to become fully mature in Christ. What does that mean to be fully mature in Christ? It means to look like Jesus and love like Jesus and live like Jesus and think like Jesus and treat people like Jesus. 
and we're all on a journey that's going to take the rest of our lives of becoming more like Jesus. But that's the goal. Spiritual encounters are essential means to that goal, to that end. But they are the means. They are not the end. Understand? That's not just true of me as an individual. That is also true of our church. I've been in the Pentecostal charismatic world most of my life. And, you know, there's been times in my life where, where I'll hear people say things like maybe this. They'll say, man, wouldn't it be great if, like, next Sunday, right in the middle of the service, boom, everybody just gets slain in the spirit. Everybody in the church just falls out under the power. And to that I say, yeah, that'd be pretty cool. And if God's the one doing it, and let's face it, that's not always the case. But if God's the one who does it, sign me up. Amen? Sign me up. But you understand that that type of encounter is not an end in and of itself. And we've got to be careful about this as ones who believe in encounters with Jesus. Every spiritual encounter we have as a church or an individual must be a means to the end of becoming fully mature in Christ. But it's not the goal in and of itself. We don't just have a powerful encounter and say, man, I've accomplished everything it means to be a Christian. No, we have those encounters with Jesus because we want to become like Jesus. And we can't become like Jesus without them. But the end is always becoming like Jesus, becoming a fully mature follower of Jesus. Everything else should be a means to that end. And I think sometimes if we're not careful, sometimes we can take the means and make it an end. And really what you end up with is a distraction. And it's very subtle when it happens. And I think usually when it happens to people, they don't even know it. They don't see it. But spiritual experiences only have value insofar as they're helping us become more like Jesus. I'll even go so far as to say this. Spiritual disciplines like prayer, reading your Bible, attending church, these practices only have value insofar as they're helping us become more like Jesus. But if they're not helping us become more like Jesus, if we're approaching these things in the wrong way or viewing them as the end goal in and of itself, then what we're doing is taking a good thing and we're making an idol out of it. Are y'all following? Is this making sense? Some of y'all are just staring at me like I'm speaking Spanish or something. So the goal is, was, always will be becoming fully mature in Christ. Amen? The key to this happening is found in the last two verses that we read. Look at what Paul tells them in verses 6 and 7. He says, so then, and it will be on the screen, Verses 6 and 7. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, continue to live your lives in Him, rooted and built up in Him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thanks, thankfulness. So Paul is, if I could reword what he's saying, he's saying it's not just enough that you received Christ as Lord at one point in your life. You know, maybe you can look back on your life and say, I remember the day. How many of you can remember the day where you first surrendered your life to Jesus? Anybody here? All right. I, I, I can remember the day. I can't tell you which day. I remember the day. Some of you even know the date. Some of you might be able to say April 15th, 1994. That was the day that I first surrendered my life to Jesus and the trajectory of my life changed. And that is a wonderful thing to remember. And, and it's a starting point. But what 
Paul is telling him is it's not just enough that you had a moment where you first received Christ as your Lord. He's saying just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted in him, learning how to live life with Jesus on a moment by moment basis. Listen to me. Christianity is always something that happens in the present tense because your life can only be lived in the present tense. The past is the past. You can't do anything about it. Can't change the past. You can learn something from it, but you can't change it. The future also cannot be acted upon. You can plan for the future, but the future is not yet a reality for you to act upon. The only moment you can control is this present moment right now. And now this moment. And now this moment. That's what life is. I'm, I'm probably going to talk more about that next Sunday. I kind of got a feeling I'm going to continue in this vein next week. Life is a series of present moments strung together. That's all life is. And so if you can remember way back when you first made a decision to give your life to Jesus, that's a wonderful thing. I remember December 14th, 1985, I submitted my life to Jesus. And I say to that, wonderful. How about now? Because the only life you actually have to submit to Jesus is the one you're living in this very present moment. And so the goal of Christianity is to learn how to take each moment and remain, aw remain aware of Christ, yielded to Christ, submitted to Christ walking hand in hand with him on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. And if you think about it, this is really the most obvious thing in the world, but it is so challenging for many reasons. I think, I think there are many reasons why it's challenging to us, but I just want to kind of focus in on one of them today. Here's one of the dominant reasons why we struggle with this concept of living life submitted to Christ on a moment-by-moment -moment basis is because we can tend to think about the Christian faith in terms of a contract with God. And we see salvation as sort of making a deal with God. And there are things that we bring to the deal, and there are things that God brings to the deal. It's a contract. And what we bring to the deal is... Um, you know, we, we agree to believe certain things. We, we want to believe certain things about Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. However, we think of that in our minds. We want to believe that. We want to believe he's the son of God and those things. We want to believe that the Bible is true. We, need, we feel like, okay, there's some certain beliefs I need to have, and then we're going to say a prayer as well. We, we often call it a sinner's prayer, just a, a prayer of repentance, asking for forgiveness. And so that's kind of what we bring to the contract. That's what we bring to the deal. That's our part. And then God, in exchange, gives us salvation in the contract. And here's how we can tend to think about salvation is we can tend to think of salvation as something that more or less is mostly about what happens after you die. It's about the afterlife. And so we think of being saved as, well, it's, being saved means being saved from hell. Um, and so, so when I get salvation, God's giving me protection from, from hell. And, and so we purchase that protection by believing certain right things and by saying a sinner's prayer. And then once that happens, boom, the deal is signed. The contract is in ink, and the deal is sealed. Now, there's a sliver of truth to all of what I just said. I'm not 
denying any of that. But what happens is when, when that becomes the totality of how we think about the Christian faith, how we think about salvation, that, man, once I've sealed the deal, I'm good, then, then what happens is there's no urgency now to live a certain way. Because the deal's been sealed. I've pretty much done everything I've needed to do to get the contract signed. I've made the deal with God. And so that's done. And so really now the focus is more on uh, now I want to get other people to sign the contract because I want them to be saved from hell as well. So we want to get them to sign the contract. And now basically that becomes what Christianity is all about to us. Um, now, I'm giving you a little bit of a caricature. I want to recognize that. But how many of you can relate to some of what I'm saying? Like how many of you can relate to this image, this idea of what the Christian faith is. I think, I think all of us, to some degree, we've all been exposed to some measure of that. And it's very pervasive. But I want to tell you this. As pervasive as it is, it is the exact wrong way to think about the Christian faith. And it messes us up in all kinds of ways. Listen very carefully. In the Bible, things are not framed in terms of a contract, they're framed in terms of a covenant. And there's a world of difference between a contract and a covenant. Here's a contract. A contract is, is a transaction. It's making a purchase, an exchange of goods. If I want car insurance, I get a quote from a company and I say, okay, I like that quote. And so we sign a contract. I sign it. One of their reps signs the contract. And when I sign my name, I'm agreeing to give them a certain amount of money every month. They're agreeing to give me insurance. And once the contract is signed, it assures them they're going to get their money. It assures me that I'll get my insurance if and when I ever need it. And so even though the contract is between two parties, it doesn't really involve the parties because our trust is not in one another. Our trust is in the piece of paper. Our trust is in the contract. In fact, if you think about it, the only reason we even have contracts is because we don't trust people. So we sign the contract to protect ourselves, to protect our own interests, to protect our own resources. So a contract, by nature, is self-oriented, and it's premised on mistrust. Covenants are totally different. With a covenant, it's not like a purchase or a transaction. It's like marriage. In fact, marriage is, is pretty much the only contract we have left in modern society today. And unfortunately, many people even have learned to look at marriage as a contract rather than a covenant. But see, when, I'm, when I get married, when you marry someone, it's not an exchange of goods. It's an exchange of lives. And your lives now become intertwined with one another. And it's not just some, some legal thing. It involves the very core of my being. And I'm not putting my trust in a piece of paper. I'm putting my trust in a person. And it's not about what I can get out of it. It's not self-oriented. It's oriented around the other person. See, a contract and a covenant couldn't be any different and in the Bible, everything, everything is framed in terms of a covenant, not a contract. God doesn't do contracts. God does covenants. 
And salvation is not a deal that you broker with God. Salvation is about saying yes to Jesus. It's about being married to Jesus Christ. That's why in the New Testament we're called the bride of Christ. And entering into salvation is not about a transaction. It's about me saying, I'm pledging my life to Jesus. And Jesus is pledging his life to me. That's what Calvary is all about. When Carrie and I got married, we got married nearly 16 years ago. And just brace yourself, Carrie. I'm going to use you several times in this message. It's all going to be okay, though. When we got married, we pledged our life to one another. We said, everything that's mine is now yours. That's true. We, we were married when we were 23 years old. So we were babies, but we, we also had been through college. We'd been through the beginning of young adulthood. So I had a lot of stuff in my apartment. And I'm going to be honest with you, once we got married, a lot of it just got sold off or thrown away but for some reason. But I had a lot of stuff, and she had a lot of stuff as well. And when we got married, everything that was hers became mine as well. And everything that was mine became hers. The same thing happens when you say yes to Jesus Everything that makes you, you, belongs to Jesus now. And the better part is everything that belongs to Jesus belongs to you. And now the rest of life becomes a journey of learning how to love him more, how to understand him better, and how to walk with Jesus on a moment-by-moment basis. Just like marriage, it's about sharing life together for the rest of your life and growing and learning and And all of these types of things. But Carrie's not going to divorce me if I forget to take the garbage out. She's committed to me. She loves me. And and she's not waiting for me to make a mistake. There's security within the marriage, right? And the same thing is true with God. There are times where we fail, where we mess up, where we stumble along the way. But God's grace continues to beckon us and call us. And so all of life is learning how to share every moment with God in the present tense. But when we think of salvation in terms of a contract, two things happen. Is First of all, number one, when we think of in terms of a, of a contract, then salvation, the way we think about it, is tied to something that happened to us in the past. I'll never forget December 8th, 1987. That's when I said yes to Jesus. That's when I got saved. That's when I signed the deal. I signed the contract. And we see salvation as something that happened to us in the past. Whereas in the New Testament, salvation is spoken of in the past, present, and future tense. I mean, you read it in, in the New Testament. We are being saved. We were saved. We're going to be saved. It's a holistic thing because it's, it's a marriage that we're involved in. And then the second thing that happens when we think of salvation in terms of a contract is then anytime somebody gives us instruction and says, listen, Now that you're a Christian, you need to start living this way. You need to refrain from this. Don't do this. Stop these habits and begin these habits. Stop living this way. Stop doing this. Start doing this. Whenever people give us that kind of instruction, we tend to look at it through a legalistic lens. We say, well, I already signed the deal. I'm already a Christian. I already got my deal with Jesus. I've signed the contract. And now what you're doing is you're just adding stipulations to something I already agreed to. I've heard Christians in my life, this is going to sound extreme, but I've heard people talk like this. I've heard people say this. They'll say, well, I'm covered by the blood, and God does, when God looks at me, he doesn't see my sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, God doesn't even know that I snort cocaine every single morning. 
God doesn't even know that I sleep around with everything that moves because I got my deal with Jesus. I'm under grace, man. I'm under the blood. I've heard of Christians who trade in their old spouse to get a new spouse for no other reason than they just wanted to. And when they get confronted about it, and somebody says, well, how does this square with your relationship with Jesus? They say, you can't judge me. I'm under grace. I got my deal with the Lord. I've signed my contract. And they justify everything. I, sleeping around with everybody just because I'm under grace. And you can't judge me. I, I've got my contract. I've got my deal signed with the Lord. Now, these are extreme examples, but it's a product of this contract kind of thinking. And to one degree or another, I think it affects all of us because it's, it's just part of the air that we breathe. And we got to be very, very careful. I think this is one of the reasons why so many American Christians remain spiritually immature is because we're thinking of Christianity in terms of signing a deal with God rather than looking at it in terms of a marriage, a covenant. See, Carrie loves me for free. Here's how it goes. Carrie loves me for free. I don't work for that. I don't have to earn it. She just gives me her love. As I am, as the knucklehead that I am, she just loves me for free. She can't help it. And she's married to me for free. I don't have to work for me to, I don't have to work for that. She, she just loves me and she's a wonderful person. So I'm loved, I'm, I'm loved by her no matter what. Now don't you think it would, pretty, it would be pretty odd for me to say, well man, since Carrie loves me for free, and she's married to me for free, I guess I can pretty much treat her however I want. And I can even be unfaithful to her because I guess it doesn't matter. Don't you think that'd be pretty strange, pretty wrong thinking to think that way? Husbands, this would be a good time for you to nod your heads. Yes, good point. See, when, when you're in a marriage covenant with someone, a marriage covenant carries with it its own ethical standards, its own expectation that I'm now going to live a certain way. I'm not going to live as a single man anymore. I'm a married man, and I'm going to do life differently now. It just, being in a marriage with someone, that it just automatically thrusts you into a new way of doing life. But it's not a contract. It's not like you're earning something. No, this is just part of what it means to be in a love covenant with someone. I'm not trying to earn Carrie's love, but as her husband, I need to treat her in a certain way. Part of what it be, means to be married to this wonderful woman is I'm going to be putting her needs before my needs. Part of what, what it means to be married to her is I'm not going to be living in the question of, man, how much can I get away with? Or, or I won't be staying out all hours of the night because maybe she won't divorce me if I do that. No. A marriage covenant carries with it its own ethical imperatives an expectation that I'm not going to live that way anymore. I'm going to live a married life. But you wouldn't think I'm being legalistic for saying that. Carrie loves me for free, but I still need to be a good husband. I still need to, still need to put her needs above my own. And I still need to treat her right, and I still need to be faithful to her. But you wouldn't hear me say that and say, well, Ryan, you're being legalistic. No. That's part of what it means to be a good husband. That's what part of what it means to be in a love covenant. And, and this is how you need to understand your commitment to Christ. God loves you for free. Everybody look at me. God loves you 
or free. You don't have to earn that. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to achieve it. He just pours it out, and, and no matter what you do, it won't, he won't stop loving you. He's relentless with his love. He loves you for free. He saves you for free. You don't work for that. He just saves you for free out of the goodness of his heart. So he loves you for free. He saves you for free. But it's not the freedom of a contract where you're saying, okay, man, there's not a lot of clauses to this contract. Let's see how much I can get away with. No, it's the freedom of a covenant. It's the freedom of being married to Jesus Christ. And what it means to be married to Jesus Christ is that now I'm going to join my life to his life. And I'm going to learn how to become more like Jesus. I'm going to learn how to love like Jesus. I'm going to learn how to talk like Jesus and think like Jesus. Just like when I spend every waking moment with my, my wife, we start acting like one another. You know, we start thinking like one another. We, we even, you, you notice how people who have been married for a long time, they start looking like each other. And that's the goal of our marriage to Christ. We want to, what it means to be married to Jesus. Now, some of y'all, when I said that, you're like, oh, heavens, no. What it means to be married to Jesus Christ is now I'm going to surrender my life to him. I'm going to learn to whatever degree he, he calls me to. I'm going to learn how to share my resources and, and live in outrageous generosity and learn how to love people well. Why? Because it's not an earning thing. I'm not working for anything. No, I'm just caught up in the beauty of who he is and in the beauty of what he's doing. And I want to be part of it. I'm going to join my life to him and learn how to share life with Jesus moment by moment. So it's not just about standing on the platform and saying, I do to Jesus. That's just the starting point. That's just the launching pad. When you say, I do to Jesus, now you're entering into a whole new way of life. When Carrie and I stood on this platform, May 27th, 2005, as little babies, 23 years old, saying yes. I remember that moment. I remember the the preacher saying the vows, and I said, I do. And then he said, now you may kiss your bride. And we kissed, and then we walked off this platform, and then we had our reception. Can you imagine if after all of that, I go to Carrie, and I say, well, Carrie, it's been a wonderful night, and uh, it's been nice knowing you. Hope I see you around sometime. That would be absurd. It would be horrifying, because that's not what you're doing when you're saying I do. You know, when I said I do, that was the moment that launched me into a new way of life, the life of a husband. And I'm going to learn to do it differently. I'm going to learn. I got to discover new rhythms now. And I'm still discovering new rhythms. As, As life changes, you have to be flexible with one another. But the whole point of marriage is you're living together, you're growing together, you're sharing life together, and it's beautiful. And this is our relationship with Christ. We say I do. We say yes to Jesus, and now we're married to Christ, and thus begins the eternal journey of learning to become more like him. And this can only happen on a moment-by-moment basis, only to the degree that you're learning to yield your life on a moment-by-moment basis will you actually grow spiritually. We'll talk more about that next week. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.